On this episode of the Fifth Estate Podcast, we're continuing a discussion with Robin Tudor on all things woo flu related and going down that rabbit hole. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hello, everyone. Uh, here we are again with Robin Tudor doing uh, part two, uh, hopefully of maybe a three or four part uh, series, depends on how much we can get covered today and uh, how many questions that people ask later on. Uh, I'm not going to go through boring everyone. I will let Robin uh, give herself an introduction for those who came in late. And then after that, we will kick it off and see what we can get through on our list. So uh, microphone's yours, Robin. Okay, fantastic, Cameron. Round two. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, so yes, I am Robin Tudor. I am a certified lifestyle medicine practitioner. I've been in practice for coming up 26 years. Something I did forget to mention when I was introducing myself to your audience uh, last time, Cameron, was that I actually have an honours degree in public health from Edith Cowan University. So on top of being qualified as a naturopath, nutritionist, um, a certified lifestyle medicine practitioner, I, um, I have a graduate diploma in counselling. I also have a rather interesting insight into, into public health, the history of the public health movement, what the aims of, of public health are, and I suppose that gives me a pretty unique vantage point to see that what the policies that Australia, and of course, you know, most countries throughout the world, particularly rich countries, implemented it at the onset of the, the COVID um, crisis opportunity, really were the antithesis of public health. They had nothing to do with public health. They are absolutely in opposition to the principles of, of public health. And that drives me pretty crazy when people are still seeing this as being a public health response, as if lockdowns were something that, you know, the public, that, that, as if lockdowns were an accepted public health intervention. They're not. Well, I mean, so, all right, kicking things off, that was one of the things that I, I did want to um, talk with you about was that, but we'll, um, I think we'll take that as, as the start and then lead in from there. Um, okay, now talking about the public health, uh, Everyone, whenever they talk about the draconian measures that we've got now, turn around and say, well, the Spanish flu 100 and something years ago, that's the same thing that they did then. Um, obviously not with the um, jab mandates and everything like that that we've got now, um, but, you know, the, the wearing of the face coverings and closing down businesses was accepted then, so why shouldn't they use that now? Mm, except businesses were not closed down. And certainly not on any kind of broad scale. Uh, if you actually look at the, the history of responses yeah. to, to the Spanish flu, what you'll see is that there were some, some cities primarily that, you know, they cancelled big events, like there were, there were homecoming parades for returning soldiers, you know, soldiers returning from the First World War, obviously. And some cities cancelled those and other cities, for instance, encouraged employers to stagger work shifts so that there would be fewer people on public transport and so on and so forth. There were temporary school closures in some jurisdictions but by, but by no means all. Uh, there was absolutely no lockdown in, in the terms that, that, that we've been living through, right? People were not told to stay in their homes. Uh, churches were not closed. The, the, honestly, anyone who says that, oh, they did this back in the Spanish flu, 
just clearly hasn't read anything about the response to the Spanish flu. And why do we call it the Spanish flu? I mean, the majority of deaths in the so-called Spanish flu pandemic were actually from bacterial pneumonia, bacterial pneumonia, okay, not virus. Influenza is, at least as we understand it, a, a disease caused by influenza viruses. That's not what killed people. What killed people was bacterial infection, largely because they were wearing these filthy face coverings. Mm. And, and, guess, and guess who knows this? Because he actually wrote an article about it, Dr. Anthony Fauci. He knows that really? bacterial pneumonia was, yeah, yeah. He knows that, that bacterial pneumonia was the, the major reason why people died. And that would make perfect sense because we know that elderly people are, are the ones who are most susceptible to um, to influenza or to serious illness as a result of contracting influenza. And yet, as everybody knows, it was younger age groups that were, you know, particularly that they were really hammered by uh, by the so-called Spanish flu. Well, that's not an age group where you see a high death rate from influenza. And that's been true throughout all sort of subsequent influenza pandemics um, in the 20th and, and the 21st centuries. Uh, okay. So, all right. Now, and going on from that, I mean, I what was that? That was study that was done, I think, late last year. Some um, parents took the face coverings of a group of school kids uh, yes. and did... Um, they sent them off to a, yeah, to a lab for to the lab examining under the microscope. Yeah. And they found, as you can imagine, with school-aged children whose hygiene habits are, are you know, not notoriously <laughs> yeah. great, um, they found all sorts of organisms growing on them. There, there were bacteria, there were fungi. And this, of course, gels perfectly with, with people's lived experience. The, mm. you know, uh, the number of people who have developed uh, you know, bacterial skin infections, you know, dentists are talking about this epidemic of, of poor oral health in both children and adults who've been forced to to wear these filthy, you know, disease-infested coverings over their faces for the better part of the last two years. Mm. If you look at how masks are used in a healthcare setting, they are changed out on a regular basis, roughly every four hours. There is a procedure for donning and doffing personal protective equipment. You don't see nurses and doctors in, in a hospital, stuffing a mask into their pocket and then pulling it out for later use. And they don't apply oh, their own. Don't. <laughs> they don't apply their own either. They're, you know, like um, the gloves and the face, cover, the face coverings, they're always held and applied by someone else. No, yeah. you don't or put at your least own if they are if, if they are putting it on, then then they you know they they clean their hands first, mm. and they ensure that they do not touch the mask. They only touch the you know the, the sort of the strings or the cords that, that that hold the mask in place. They do not stick their grubby little fingers all over that mask. But that's exactly what you see people doing. And you know that's the, um, you know in the early days of this and. Um, you know, discussions on fake book and all that sort of stuff. And I, I came out with the thing is that the face coverings don't work. Oh, yes, they do. And there was that um, yeah. meme that they put up about someone peeing on your leg. You know, you'd rather have them pee through their pants rather than that. And But it's like, okay, they're two different things. Water molecules are obviously a little bit bigger than air mole- molecules. They're coming out of greater force mm. from um, from your mouth and all that sort of stuff. But then there's the other thing. Is that you have a look at? I'm not sure what the directions are in Queensland, but down here, there's no standard. 
It doesn't say mm. what the standard of face covering is. So how can they say yes. all face when, coverings when, work? When you go and buy a box of these things from, from the from the pharmacy, you'll see it actually says right there in the box, you know, this, this product doesn't actually stop, you know, viruses. You, you, and in other words, we're just the manufacturers, don't sue us. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, you, you can still find archived um, online an article from Sydney Morning Herald in, uh, I believe it was 2003, so during the SARS um, epidemic. Or the it wasn't really epidemic actually during the SARS um, outbreak. Mm. The then Minister for Fair Trade in New South Wales, her name was Reba Ma. Uh, she actually threatened the pharmacies with legal action if they promoted the use of face masks, like if they were actually selling their face masks to people with the promise that it would protect them against viral infection. And yet. Mm, everyone's rushing out to buy the yeah, anyway. Um, yeah. Oh, it's, it's it's completely insane. Now you know Australia's pandemic preparedness plan and that of the WHO and the CDC and the UK and all the European nations that that um, you know developed pandemic preparedness plans over the years, which was basically all of them. It was part of the requirements for them to be uh, you know all signed up and in good standing with the international health regulations uh, promulgated by WHO. So you look through all these pandemic preparedness plans and all of them acknowledge that there is no evidence that face masks, uh, particularly worn in community settings, have any effect either for source control, that is, you know, if I've got an upper respiratory tract infection and I don't want you to get it, uh, so I, it, that that's what we mean by source control. I should wear a mask to stop you getting it. Well, no, there's actually no evidence that it works for that. And there's also no evidence of a protective effect. So if you were wearing the mask because, you know, I've got an upper respiratory tract infection, you don't want to get infected, uh, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work, particularly with the, with the sorts of, you know, ridiculous flimsy things that, that people are walking around wearing. Mm. Um, you know, these surgical masks. And people always say, oh, well, why do, why do surgeons wear masks then? Why does everyone in an operating theatre have to wear masks? Well, number one, you know, they don't wear masks in order to uh, interrupt the, the, the transmission of, of, of viral illnesses. Uh, the reason why surgeons wear masks is, is to, you know, avoid drooling over an open wound. And as a matter of fact, uh, there, there have been studies done, fascinating studies done, where surgeons were, in fact, the whole surgical team was randomised to either wear or not wear masks while conducting surgery. And infection rates were higher in patients where the surgical team had worn masks. Oh. All right? Let that sink in. These are studies that have been done repeatedly in different settings and they always find the same thing. Masks don't work. Uh, okay. Now, um, that is actually a good segue into the other bit that I want to talk to you about was with, with your understanding of, of public health responses and all that sort of stuff, why has that been the response? And, you know, um, why in your view are the is, all these, you know, learned people out there and um, what is it, um, the Victorian Chief Health Officers and Adjunct Professor in who knows what, um, why are they pushing the reliance on these series of therapeutics as well as uh, locking you up inside as opposed to a genuine um, preventative measure, which is what they're supposed to do under the uh, Victoria's Public Health and Wellbeing Act, 
mm-hmm. of um, you know exercise, uh, you know all that sort of stuff. Things that you can do to reduce the uh, the comorbidities such as obesity, which there's more and more reports coming out saying that's the big problem because it attacks the lungs and all that sort of stuff. Why have we gone to mm. this one as opposed to getting people off their backsides, out doing stuff, getting out in the sunshine saying, you know, and, and being honest with people, hey, if you get it, you might get it bad, you've got a 98% chance of surviving it so it's not doom and gloom. Mm. But, but, you know, even more so than that, you, if you get it, then you should immediately seek advice uh, from a, a skilled and knowledgeable health practitioner who can assess you on the basis of your risk category and let you know whether you should be commencing early treatment mm. or whether, say, you know, if you're a young, fit, normal weight person, uh, you, you can just, you know, go to bed for a couple of days and let the fever run through your body and, and burn the virus out and then you'll be absolutely good as gold and you'll have lifelong immunity. And, and, and in doing so, you will form part of this sort of human shield um, that eventually coalesces to, to produce the phenomenon known as herd immunity. Okay, but, but to answer your question properly, why, why aren't they doing what a good public health response would dictate? At the level of individuals like, like Brett Sutton, I, I don't know whether he is merely ignorant. I mean, remember that, that public health is actually not part of medicine. Mm. Mm. Public health is a separate discipline. Mm. And the 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 orientation of of a you know a doctor uh, a nurse a, you know a, even someone you know um, with, with my training in, in terms of uh, being a naturopath nutritionist and lifestyle medicine practitioner, the orientation of that is you treat the patient who's in front of you. Mm. Okay, it's a clinical orientation. Um, the Public health training is is something very different. It's like a community orientation. So, was you know, has Brett Sutton received adequate training uh, to you know to be qualified to be chief health officer in, in a public health role? I don't know. I mean, I have such little interest in him that I haven't really delved into his background, yeah, uh, apart I, from some interesting family too. connections, which which we might get to. Yeah. So, so you could possibly plead ignorance. He just hasn't been properly trained. Um, and and I I think that that's that's definitely true of some of the sort of lower level functionaries um, who who are implementing the, these measures at the sort of you know local and state and and possibly even federal level. At a level that's far higher than that, there has been a progressive move over the last twenty odd years to to hijack public health and to spin it in a in a direction which was not originally intended. In fact, you could really say this goes back more like 35 to 40 years. So the uh, one of the sort of pivotal events in the history of the World Health Organization was something called the the Ottawa Charter. If my memory serves me correctly, and I can look this up very, very quickly, it was it was mid eighties. Um, the Ottawa Charter was, mm, I think, in eighty six. Let's actually have a look just to confirm this. Uh, Nineteen eighty six. Yeah, that's not bad. That's good. Memory, is it? Okay. So the the Ottawa Charter was was well uh, the Ottawa Convention um, was this sort of global 
meeting of, of countries that, that were members of the of the UN and, and therefore members of WHO. And the Ottawa Charter was really, I would say, the zenith of the the good WHO. Okay, <laughs> the, the sort of the Dr. Jekyll rather than Mr. Hyde. And it affirmed the importance of building community, empowering communities to be in charge of their own health. It emphasised the, the wisdom of, of, you know, Indigenous healthcare traditions around the world, you know, um, it emphasised that traditional healers of, of various descriptions should be should be absolutely integrated into the healthcare system of each country. Um, it was it was pretty damn awesome, actually. If you if you read the the sort of pronouncements of the Ottawa Charter, you'd, you'd be you know you'd probably be quite impressed. And then it all went downhill from there. <laughs> and and uh, the the next sort of major WHO shindig was was the um, Jakarta meeting. And and if you read the text of the the Jakarta Declaration, it's a very different beast. So by the time of the Jakarta Declaration, the WHO had really taken on the idea of public private partnerships. You've heard that <gasps> thrown around, haven't you? Yes. Public-private yes. partnerships. Yeah. So what does that mean? Well, it basically means we're going to take money from the people, from their taxes, for instance, and we're going to throw it at corporations. And that's exactly what, what, the, what the Jakarta Declaration was all about. So from the time of the Jakarta Declaration, which if memory says was early 90s, uh, let's see, Jakarta, Declaration, 97, sorry. So it was, uh, yeah, 11 years on from the Ottawa Charter. And so the rot had really, really set in. And that, that so that um, downward spiral of the WHO uh, hit head on a, a uh, what would you call it? There, there was, there was a, a, a sort of coterie of, people within the US military and intelligence communities who became obsessed with biological warfare. And this, this began in, as best as I can tell, the mid-80s, although they'd always been enthusiasts of biological warfare before then. But the you know, individual players started to, to gain a lot of power um, in the mid-80s. And so certainly by the mid to late 90s, there were some very loud voices within the, uh, the US military and intelligence communities who were just banging on about biological warfare. And uh, if you read their sort of public pronouncements, what, what they're on about is, oh, you know, the Ruskies might have biological warfare agents or those, or, or, or you know, the Chaikoms or it, whoever our enemy of the month this is. Mm. Oh, oh, Saddam, of course, mm. they were obsessed yeah. with the idea of Saddam having biological warfare agents, which, of course, they'd supplied him with mm. <laughs> back when he was their ally. <laughs> That's one hell of an interesting history if you want to delve into that. You know, who was Saddam Hussein? Who got him into power? Um, he was all buddy buddies with the, the US and the UK um, you know, military intelligence and, until he started doing a few things that rather annoyed them and they decided to bump him off. But, but you know, before they got annoyed with him, they actually shipped him a whole bunch of biological warfare agents and encouraged him to use them I on mean, his own population. That's the same the thing. parts of his population they weren't keen on. Yeah, that's the same thing with um, uh, Iran and then bin Laden um, and ISIS yeah. and, and everything like that. It's all been funded through... Um, you know, the US three-letter agencies to do their bidding, yes. so it keeps them yes. at arm's length for it. Was a CIA asset. Yes. That's not a, that that's that's news to most people, but it's not a secret. Yeah. Bin Laden was a CIA asset. 
Yep. And then, you know, it, yeah, but, oh. On the morning um, of September 11, George H.W. Bush was having a meeting with bin Laden's brother. Mm. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, come on. <laughs> so anyway, where was I? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, we, we, we've got these, these people who are obsessed with biological warfare and they started, um, they started holding these conferences on how the US and, 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 and it started with the US response and then branched out to a global response, how, how countries should respond to the threat of, of uh, biological agents. And so this began a, a, a series of, uh, initially they were fairly low tech, but by 2001, these, these conferences had become very sophisticated. So they, uh, they conducted pandemic simulations. Uh, most people have heard of Event 201, the event that was held in New York City in October of 2019 that that simulated the appearance and rapid dissemination around the world of a novel coronavirus. And yes, they use that exact language. Mm. They call it a novel coronavirus. And how in order to, to deal with this virus, they were going to have to take control of social media and they were going to have to get the legacy media on message and, you know, uh, deal, with, deal with public protests and all the rest of it, right? In other words, uh, Event 201 was a war game that, that simulated... Uh, what what governments were going to do to their populations, and as a matter of complete coincidence, it, it took place you know uh, before, just you know just months before SARS-CoV-2 was identified. Although the evidence certainly is that SARS-CoV-2 was already in circulation by the time Event 201 was held, something that the people involved in it would have known because of their own surveillance capacity, their own um, viral surveillance capacity. Okay, but Event 201 was just the, the latest in a long string of these. Uh, the, the, the first one that was really a full-tilt simulation was Dark Winter, which was held just a couple of months. I believe it was either April or May of, of 2001, so in other words, just a couple of months before September 11, 2001. And Dark Winter was a simulation of a you know bioterror attack involving smallpox. Oh. And uh, th so there's yeah, and, and then and then just months later, of course, most people have forgotten the anthrax attacks that took place um, after September 11. Yep, and that was a big, big, scary thing. Yes, and then it turned out because because again, you know, they tried to blame that on Saddam Hussein, and that was part of the justification for for invading Iraq, which had absolutely nothing to do with September 11, which has been acknowledged since. Of course, Iraq had nothing to do with September 11. Mm. The particular you know uh, version of Islam that, that Saddam Hussein uh, adhered to was diametrically opposed to, to the Wahhabism of, of, of bin Laden and, and his merry band of. Um, Psychopaths. Um, sorry, side note, side note, this is so, so interesting. Um, Osama bin Laden's tutor was um, an Egyptian who was actually one of what, what, what were called the, um, the Arab Nazis. Very few people have heard of this, but there was a whole band of sort of Middle Eastern um, Wahhabists who were pretty damn keen on Nazism. And Hitler, as it turned out, was actually pretty damn keen on them. And so there was no, no attempt to sort of round up the Arab Nazis at the end of the Second World War. Um, they were sort of part of the, the British intelligence network and they were sold off to Alan Dulles, who became head of the, the CIA 
um, by, by the British intelligence network. And uh, one of the leading figures in these Arab Nazis was the tutor of Osama bin Laden. Oh, Jeez. oh yep. man, six degrees, doesn't it? It's just like, Yeah, oh. uh-huh. Yeah, so this web of, of sort of, because um, this extreme um, jihadist thread of, of, of Wahhabism was actually a pretty neat fit for Nazism. Um, they, they were all into genocide. They just had slightly different versions of, of who needed to be eradicated from the planet in order for it to be a better place. But they had enough in common that they could all get along. Yeah, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. It's all just one happy band of psychopaths. Yeah. Um, yeah. So now let's see. So we had Dark Winter and, of course, the anthrax that was used in the anthrax attacks uh, turned out to to be a particular strain called the Ames strain of anthrax. That there were only two labs that could produce that strain, and they were both in the United States. Mm. <laughs> and the the FBI attempted to frame two individuals uh, within the US for for carrying out the anthrax attacks, and uh, neither of them did it. I mean, the evidence is very clear that neither of them did it. The first managed to sue the FBI for defamation and got himself um, a good settlement, which, mm. which is fair enough because they made his life hell. Um, the other one committed suicide or was suicided, you know, mm. did he Epstein himself? Yeah. Who knows? Um, but he was framed. And anyway, so so you've got – so from uh, certainly from 2001 onward, uh, the presence of these – Military intelligence types within the public health community started to started to rise. They they became a more powerful voice, and they got the ear of of, of George Bush Senior, uh, Junior. I'm sorry, President Shrub, <laughs> and uh, they they were presenting to him this idea that the appropriate response to uh, to a pandemic was this sort of pre-medieval approach or, you know, very medieval approach of, of lockdown. And they, uh, they, they got Bush's ear. He was pretty keen on hearing this. And the article that was uh, co-authored by, by Donald Henderson, and I don't, did, did we mention, did I talk about Donald Henderson the last time we, we spoke? No, I don't think so. No, okay. So Donald Henderson was the uh, was self, the self-styled virus hunter. Um, he was the man who actually designed the strategy that resulted in the eradication of smallpox. Uh, by the way, at the time smallpox was declared eradicated from from the earth, uh, the vast majority of people had not been uh, vaccinated against smallpox. That mm. isn't how smallpox was eradicated. It was eradicated through um, case isolation. They did employ a ring vaccination strategy. So when a case was was identified, that person would be uh, isolated, mm. and the immediate contacts of that person were given the smallpox vaccine. But that that vaccine was deadly. It was an extremely dangerous vaccine. So they did not want to. And, and Henderson knew this. So they didn't want to risk, you know, the, the vast numbers of deaths that would have resulted if they tried to vaccinate everyone against smallpox. So they employed this, this uh, ring vaccination strategy, and that, that was Henderson's design. He was also involved in the um, campaign to eliminate polio, uh, which worked out just dandy in the Western world because we have a thing called plumbing. And, of course, polio is still endemic in um, parts of Asia and, and Africa where they have a hell of a lot of vaccines but no plumbing. Mm. Um, so, so Henderson, who was by that stage um, 87, 
So this was in 2006. Um, Henderson co-wrote an, an article on the on, on on how on an appropriate public health response to to a pandemic, um, spe specifically pandemic influenza. But, but it applies pretty much to any sort of respiratory pathogen. So so um. Um, and this was Henderson's pushback against these these computer modelers and military intelligence types, who, of course, had absolutely zero experience in managing outbreaks of infectious disease. But here they were telling the president of the United States that they knew better than Henderson knew how to manage a, a, an epidemic. So that got Henderson ever so slightly riled up. He wrote a great paper. Uh, which was called Disease Mitigation Measures in the Control of Pandemic Influenza. And um, actually, let me just read a quote from, from this, yeah. uh, which is uh, sums up his whole approach. Um, so, quote, experience has shown that communities faced with epidemics or other adverse events respond best and with the least anxiety when the normal social functioning of, of the community is least disrupted. Strong political and public health leadership to provide reassurance and to ensure that needed medical care services are provided are critical elements. If either is seen to be less than optimal, optimal a manageable epidemic could move toward catastrophe. And, yeah, yeah, that's what we're seeing now. I mean... Normal social functioning of community least disrupted. Provide reassurance. Ensure that needed medical care services are provided. And if you don't do all of that, a manageable epidemic could move toward catastrophe. What have we got now? Yeah, yeah, yep. Um, what mean, have they done to us? Okay, so so this is this is like the battle of ideas, the battle of, of, of approaches. And um, Henderson, of course, had the experience; he had the academic chops, um, but uh, he was he was kind of outvoted. So over the over the the next um, couple of decades, there were repeated um, pandemic modelling uh, or like pandemic simulation events that took place. Some of them were sort of live scripted events, uh, really big budget. You know, if you've had a look at, at event 201 or even Dark Winter, you'll see one hell of a lot of money went into the production of these events. They were events. Um, you know, important people, famous people were invited to participate in these, you know, uh, presidents, prime ministers, uh, you know, former um, CIA heads. CIA always had a big uh, role to play in these simulation exercises. And so they, they had all this money to spend on, you know, mock news segments and, uh, you know, scripting and, and, and all the rest of it. And yet apparently they didn't have enough money to provide genuinely effective personal protective equipment to healthcare workers when the actual pandemic broke out. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, what's going on there? The thrust of these repeated exercises was to drag the public health response away from what is a genuine public health response and to a militarised response with an emphasis on top-down control, really top-down control, broad-scale quarantining, something that is entirely inappropriate for a respiratory um, pandemic in, in particular, and the, you know, forceful closure of businesses and chucking the kids out of school and so forth, and, and of course, you know, control of, of media messaging and control of social media platforms. So that, that is what these, you know, military intelligence types have been uh, working on 
for the last at least 20 years, okay? So does that give you some sense of, of where this all goes back to? Uh, and, and, of course, the, the, the other thing, you know, the other key element of these um, exercises was rapid development of, of therapeutics, of new therapeutics, okay, um, that were obviously because they were new, they were going to be patentable. Mm. Now, as we've seen in the SARS-CoV-2 episode, good doctors, experienced doctors, doctors who still understand how to practice medicine, worked out very, very early on that there were many therapeutics already in their arsenal, uh, drugs that had been off patent for, for years to decades. They, they knew the safety profile of these drugs really well. They, they knew the mechanism of action. Uh, they knew which ages uh, these drugs were and, and were not suited for, whether they were safe to use in pregnancy, blah, 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 blah. And so uh, it started in Italy. Italian doctors began experimenting to, to see what, what uh, therapeutic agents already in their arsenal would, would work well for, for COVID. And then they passed that information on to um, US doctors and, and these networks formed of, of doctors talking to each other as, as, as doctors do, as they should do when there's a, a, you know, a new disease entity. They were sharing this information and um, these doctors groups have, have set up websites and you can actually look at the protocols that they've got. They put it out online for free, right? These, these people are not interested. They're not trying to rip off the public. They, they put their protocols that they have found successful in treating their patients up on the web for free so that everyone can get access to them and they know how to use, you know, simple, um, relatively safe, you know, everything's relative, but mm. relatively safe and well-known, well-understood drugs that, that could be used whether you're in, you know, India or Botswana or in Sydney or Melbourne or, or, or the Gold Coast, right? So that's what real doctors do. But all of these pandemic preparedness um, or pandemic planning exercises were all about, you know, how can we pave the way for pharmaceutical companies to rush new products onto the market without adequate testing? How can we finance them? How can we step around regulations? That's what they were doing. I've actually, you know, downloaded and read uh, the, the documents that were released from over a dozen of these conferences. Um, Bobby Kennedy's new book, um, The Real Anthony Fauci, goes into an even greater depth than I've been able to. He identified um, 20 of them and studied in detail 14 of them. They're, they're, in, his, they're in his book. So that, that is why we, we have this catastrophic uh, anti-public health response because it's been in the planning for decades. Okay, now understand that. No, no doubts about that, because um, you know all you got to have is look at all these, um, you know what people have put down as false, fa- false, false, false flag events. Always usually start with military exercises beforehand, so mm. everyone happens mm-hmm. to be there. Now, all that aside, can understand someone like you know a country like America um, and you know lifetime bureaucrats like Fauci and all that sort of stuff subscribing to that even, um, you know, continental Europe because they went under the EU banner and everything like that, why would, um, you know, a piddly little country like Australia and even worse, piddly little states like Victoria and Queensland, like, and, and you know, yes, they're not piddly in the, in the context of Victoria, but though in the context of bigger nations, why mm. why are we quick to subscribe to it? And then with that, 
why is it always that nations that um, seem to be doing something different to the accepted narrative, like, for example, um, South Africa didn't want to take on the Pfizer jabs and then all of a sudden Moronic variant comes up, um, mm. you know, claims of um, presidents being assassinated or attempted kidnaps that turned out wrong um, and then mm. whether you, you claim it's conspiracy related to um, something else to do with this Wu flu, um, you know, is this the the big conspiracy that everyone was talking about in the 80s and the 90s of the world one, one world government or is it something more insidious than that? But, I mean, what what is it to get these little people that we've never heard of before all of a sudden in the spotlight and they're subscribing to it and then the establishments are and all these people who should be nameless and faceless and not, you know, dismissing their roles prior to this, but we don't want to be hearing from epidemiologists every day. We don't want to be hearing from the chief health officer every day. Um, why, you know, what, are, you know, do they know something we don't or are they just incompetent in what they're doing? Yeah, so... And I understand, think understand this yeah. is your own personal opinion. We're not making any things. This is what mm. your thoughts are. So, you know, all that sort of stuff. So well, all I those disclaimers... First of all, to understand the, the notion of compartmentalization. And it, people will often say, oh, you couldn't have a conspiracy on that scale because someone would, would talk. And, uh, you know, and, and when, when has government ever been able to keep something secret? Okay, what about the Manhattan Project? Mm. The Manhattan Project was called the Manhattan Project because one of the major sites for it was Manhattan, you know, New York. Mm. as in, you know, one of the, the largest and most bustling cities in the United States and, in fact, the world. So, and there, there, were, there were thousands upon thousands. I don't even know how many people were involved in the Manhattan Project, but there was a hell of a lot of them. And the way that, that the Manhattan Project was kept secret was that very few people knew what the aim of the Manhattan Project was. So everybody was working in their own particular little space, um, the majority of people working on the Manhattan Project did not know that the end of the Manhattan Project was to build a, you know, an H-bomb. Mm. They didn't know that. But that's what came out of their endeavours. So it's so the, the, the notion that, oh, everybody's in on it and they all kind of meet in the smoke-filled room and all the rest of it, well, uh, no, that's that's silly. That isn't how these... How these um, endeavors work but there are there you know there, there always are a small number of people who know what the objective is and they use the the structure which was um described by carol quigley uh who was a historian at georgetown university and one of the mentors of bill clinton which uh you know bill clinton publicly acknowledged on multiple occasions and carol quigley wrote a book he, he wrote a number of books actually uh, he was a military historian and the the best known of his books, although not as well known as it should be, is called Tragedy and Hope: A History of the World in Our Time, and another one called the uh, the Anglo the Anglo American the Anglo American um, hmm, sorry, let me just look that up. The Anglo American Alliance or something like that. Um, the Anglo American Establishment. That's it. So what what he what he sort of summarised in, in in his books was um, what Jared. Edward Griffin has dubbed the Quigley formula, which is rings, rings within rings within rings. Mm. In other words, at, at the at the centre, you've got this very small number of people who who have a plan, 
and they don't think in terms of, they don't think like politicians do. Politicians think of the next electoral cycle. How can I get myself back into power again? How can I climb the, you know, the, the, the dunghill mm. of politics and get to, the, get to the top, you know, the yurtle, the turtle? Um, no, they don't, they don't think in those terms. They, they think in terms of decades and, and, and generations. But that's the, that's the innermost ring. And then you've got the next ring out. And, you know, there's obviously more people in that ring, but they know less of the plan. And then the further out you go from, from the centre ring, the less people know. However, they, they know enough to, to uh, function according to what the ones in the very middle who cooked up the whole agenda to what they want. So the, the likes of our he- chief health officers and chief medical officers are frankly probably don't know diddly squat about mm. what is what is going on um, in the in that innermost ring. Who of us does? I don't know. I mean I can I can guess. I can have a look at where this is going and I can guess their intentions. I can read the the, the documents, the speeches, the books written by certainly not those in the innermost ring because I don't even know who the hell they are, but certainly the, you know, their, their, their acolytes who are closer to the middle of this whole thing. I can read what they've written. I can watch their speeches online. I can see, you know, where, where they're wanting to move uh, humanity, where they're wanting to, to move everybody on earth. And, and then I can look at, at, at the policies that have been implemented supposedly in the name of, of, of containing a virus. I mean, it's farcical. It's mm-hmm. a highly contagious respiratory virus. The idea that you're going to stop the spread, it's like, you know, go, go, why don't you go hold back the tide, mm-hmm. see how that works out for you. Mm-hmm. It's idiocy. Um, but the, yeah, so so the you know, people like Brett Sutton and our chief health officer here, I've, I've forgotten who they wheeled in to replace Jeanette Young, um, someone or other. Mm. So, you know, uh, uh, they, they're, they're following orders. Mm. You know, it's, it, it's the Umsprache it's the of, the, of the Nazi regime. Uh, they're just obeying orders. Yeah, and, and that's the thing that, you know, through unfortunate experience here, we'll see that Stem and Andrews will um, put out something and then, you know, he's trusting the science, but then two weeks later, hey, it becomes a public health order. Well, Seriously, mm. I mean, isn't the science supposed to be changing all the time? Yet here he is able to predict what will be happening. But um, you know, I, I think if we talk about that, that'll get down into a um, whole new rabbit hole. Um, now, mm. um, I think well, the next subject that, that I wanted to get to, because I, I think this one is um, not diminishing their importance of everything else. But, um, in the previous episode, we did talk about adverse reactions and adverse events. Mm. Now. Mm. Um, been looking a bit more into underreporting, and you know, I originally thought at a conservative thing that you know ten percent would be uh, reported. Uh, things that I'm seeing now is that they're they're saying that only one percent of actual things are reported, yeah. and then out of that reporting, a majority is already dismissed because they find other things that. Oh no! It could be you know it could be this or it could be that, and then dismiss it as not being an adverse reaction to the jabs. Yeah, um, that's it. And so here's here's the giant hypocrisy of that. Sorry to interrupt no, no, before right. you go on. Here's the giant hypocrisy of that. We are told that I don't know a thou- over a thousand Australians. What are they up to now in terms of the number of people they say have died 
you know, of of COVID. I, I haven't been keeping yeah. track of this, but they're, they're saying that, I don't know, 1,500 or 1,800 or whatever people have died of COVID. And yet, if you actually look at the uh, medical history of these people, the majority of them died with and not of mm. SARS-CoV-2 infections. So, in other words, they were already very elderly. They might have had heart conditions, cancer, whatever the heck else. I mean, the, the first the first person to die of COVID in Germany was a guy with stage four esophageal cancer who was in a hospice. Mm. Mm. I mean, how ridiculous. And then everyone's heard about, you know, people who were killed in car accidents or died of gunshot wounds or whatever. Yep. And on the on the death certificate, it says died of COVID. Why? Because they, they, they tested positive, some of them, you know, after they died. Mm. So so how is it that we can say that, that you know, however many people it is are, are claimed to have died of COVID in Australia? Um, so so they, they, there is no evidence that all of these people died as a direct result of viral infection. Okay, um, but, but the government wants to scare you by saying, oh, this many people have died of COVID. On the other hand, when people die in very close temporal proximity to receiving an injection and they die of, of conditions that were identified as being adverse reactions in the clinical trials and have since been identified as adverse reactions in various jurisdictions throughout the world, that's a coincidence, right? So, so, the, so the death of, a, of an 85-year-old with, with cancer is due to COVID. It's, it's not coincidental that, that that person tested positive for the virus. Mm. But it is a coincidence when someone dies soon after receiving an experimental injection. Sorry, you don't get to have it both ways. Yeah, and, and that's... That's exactly what they're trying to do. That's the thing that's baffled me. I mean, um, you know, I was aware of that because I think um, an earlier um, press conference last year, um, our chief health officer actually turned around and said, yes, as part of international accepted reporting... It is someone who dies with it, not from it yes. or, or of it. Yes. But then this came to a yes. head recently for um, a case in New Zealand where a guy was gunned down, like the, the bullet wounds mm. killed him. So that was yep. what killed him and yet uh, during the autopsy, bang, he found out he had the virus in his system. So, bang, he's, he's done as a COVID death. Well, yes. what was the cause of death? Was it COVID or the bullets? And, you know, if, <laughs> if he survived... You know, if he survived the bullets yeah. and only be claimed by COVID, it's just like, eh. mm. um, but yeah, that's that's a so, and this is this is something that um, that experienced pathologists were were you know, raising pain about very very early on, where every rule of uh, first of all coding a a patient's presentation uh, to to a healthcare facility and. Uh, coding meaning, you know, what's the reason for the visit, right? So, so every every rule of coding was thrown out the window, and then when it came to the certification of death, every rule, because you know, if you look at a death certificate, you'll you'll see that there are there are sort of um, generally three lines. Um, the person certifying the death needs to specify the causal chain. Okay, so if a person has if a person uh, dies of a heart attack. That's listed as the cause of death. But then the person certifying the death also has to list that, you know, the heart attack was was um, due to underlying atherosclerotic disease and high cholesterol and, say, diabetes, okay? So so the, the person certifying the death has to sort of lay out a, 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 a sort of physiologically credible reason why that person snuffed it. So if a person dies of esophageal cancer... <laughs> There's no, there's no sort of credible link between that and the fact that they just happened 
to to have some quantity, not specified, of course, mm. of, 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 a, of a particular respiratory virus. I mean, if you swap them and ran a PCR, like a multiplex PCR test, I've no doubt you could find all manner of, of, of viruses up their nose and in their you know, respiratory tract and throughout their bodies. And on top of that, you could find any number of bacteria. You could find a good deal of fungi as well. Are they all going to be listed on the death certificate as causes of death? Yeah, yep. Um, there's, there's no causal chain in the vast majority of cases. And, you know, it, it's. I'm sure you've heard um, the stories about, you know, people being offered money or getting more money for the estate if, you mm. know, they put down that as a cause of death. Um, oh, in the US they'll actually pay for your funeral expenses. Yes. If the doctor certifies as a COVID death, so of course you know a bunch of poor people are going, heck, we can't afford to bury bury Granny, so we'll let them get away with this. We'll let yeah. them certify her death as as, as due to COVID. And, you know, it, it's you know it, that just baffles me. I mean, is that corruption? And then from from that, um, which you know leads into the the next bit that I want to talk about, which you know. It's either corruption or, um, you know, government-controlled fascism uh, for that. So, I mean, is that corruption to allow that to happen without yes. a complicit uh, corporate press raising attention to that? And yet, mm. you know, um, which, you know, just so- something that I want to get into with the next bit is, is APRA's role in this, but talking about mm. just on, on the, the corruption of the corporate press, I mean, you know, they've done... Um, spent hundreds of hours and, and all that sort of stuff getting footage to um, – I, I need to choose the words right for this one because I don't um, – okay, so identifying people who have a particular abhorrent view in society, um, mm. demonising you – know, they'll spend hundreds of hours doing some joint investigation with, um, yeah. you know – state-sponsored violence organisations in, in this country and yet they won't do any investigation, like genuine investigative reporting into this. So they're, you know, it, it's like that's that... That's absolutely correct. It's like that they will comb through a demonstration in which, you know, hundreds of thousands of just regular people, mums and dads pushing their, their toddlers in strollers and, you know, grannies and nurses and, you know, paramedics and so forth, all of these perfectly normal people, they will comb through a demonstration with tens or hundreds of thousands of these people to find some, you know, nut job, mm. some unhinged person who's wearing a swastika or whatever the hell. Not that I've even seen them. I mean, you know, I've been I've been along to, to many of these rallies. I've not seen anyone who's remotely fringe in any way, shape or form. And yet they're they're the, you know, it's it's the wing nuts who end up on the on the six o'clock news, not the perfectly sensible, rational, articulate people. You 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 never you never see you never see, not that I watch news, but mm. the the small amount that's sort of shared on on social media platforms um, that I that I do use, um, what what the what the corporate media and the ABC and the SBS who have been utterly reprehensible, completely reprehensible, they've been disgusting. Um, honestly, I'm all in favour of defunding SBS and the ABC based yep. on their yep. appalling lack of journalism uh, throughout this entire you know crisisunity. So. So yeah, they they won't they won't um, uh, interview anyone who's who's articulate and and has a well reasoned argument. No, they deliberately they deliberately search out and and honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if they just plant a wing nut in yeah. in the midst of these demonstrations. A classic example of this was the the giant rally in Berlin 
that uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. addressed, uh, I think it was October of, of 2020. Um, it was organised by a movement in Germany called uh, Quidenken, which is basically like people who question or people who think for themselves. And uh, Bobby Kennedy was speaking on this stage and, and you know, there was a, 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 it was a very sort of multi-ethnic, multi-racial uh, speaker lineup, and there were people, you know, flying rainbow flags and all this sort of thing. They were perfectly well-mannered, well-behaved, normal people. And then there was this little false flag operation where, uh, where in, in the midst of all of this, uh, a bunch of, of right-wingers, you know, security uh, plants, stooges, who the hell knows, staged this sort of the storming of the Reichstag, you know, in, in Berlin. And, of course, the media, who hadn't been covering Bobby, Bobby Kennedy's speech, they, they, they were conveniently placed to, to film this these these nut jobs running up the up the steps of the you know the German uh, houses of Parliament to, to sort of storm it all fifteen of them or mm. something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just ludicrous. Mm. And and the whole rally was described as 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 you know neo Nazi, which was so disgusting. And and. Kennedy's suing them. He's suing the media outlets that that accuse him of, of addressing a, a crowd of, of neo Nazis, and um, and good on him mm. because that that is defamation and it is absolutely disgusting. Mm. It is anti journalism. It's you know what is this? They're just they're just mouthpieces totally. of, of the government and, and and not even the government. They're mouthpieces of the interests that control the government. Totally, and um, just. On on that bit, before I you know want to bring back to the, to opera and all that sort of stuff, mm. um, there was the what is it? All the lefties are jumping up and down. I know K Rudd's pushing it all out on Twitter about um, some parliamentary motion or report to uh, create a royal commission. I think he wants to target Murdoch, and I'm not sure what this report mm. was mm. saying. Though, you know, as um, you know, I, I think we discussed last time or I don't know whether it was during the recording or off air, um, you know, the, the corruption on it, it's it's all the corporate media, not just yeah. one family who owns it, the whole lot. You've mentioned SBS and ABC. I mean, their, their coverage of, of anything that isn't a, um, you know, a, an identified left-leaning narrative is just woeful they they won't cover it, it, it anything except, except what what is the left anymore yes you know when i was when i first became politically active or politically interested the left was representing the the interests of of you know the quote unquote working class oh what you mean the people who've been screwed over the hardest <laughs> yes by, by the, the labor party <laughs> so so where's the abc you know representing the the, the rights of people who were being coerced to, to take a you know a rush to market um, injection mm. that, that, that doesn't stop infection and doesn't stop transmission. Where, where's the ABC representing these people? Yeah, they're nowhere to be found. Yep. The ABC just represents the you know the laptop classes, the ones that, because they're all doing so very well at the ABC, aren't they? They mm. still have jobs. Mm. They've got more money because the government's sort of kicking in so much for uh, you know having them promote their their line, and of course the the other the other dinosaur media. Um, like the the newspapers and the and the television stations, which which were losing money because you know no one's interested in what they have to say, but um, the government is, is is kicking so much money into into advertising uh, through these legacy media outlets that that now uh, you know they they've become you know like the media has become the government's boy. Mm, mm. 
totally. very unpleasant phrase with with certain overtones, but you know they 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 become their 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 lackeys. Yeah, and I mean I mean that's the thing is that um, you know. Um, I was in Queensland at the 2011 floods and the Courier-Mail and uh, even the Brisbane Times did nothing to, you know, um, dig deeper into what the Bly regime was doing at the time Mm. and their involvement Mm. in it. And then it happened to be um, the Australian, a journalist from the Australian who dug deeper and found out something, so then the um, Board of Inquiry, which should have been a Royal Commission because I think that the Royal Commission had more powers even though both are, you know, effectively toothless because they're governed by the terms of reference. Um, but, you know, it, it caused that to be opened again. Um, same down here with the uh, COVID-19, the hospital, uh, sorry, the Hotel Quarantine Royal Commission the mm. corrupt corporate press down here did nothing. It was because of Peter Credlin asking questions yeah. and saying, hey, have you got the phone records? Have you got the phone? You can ask for the phone records. It was because Doing of her. basic journalism. Yes. Yeah. That yeah. caused that um, royal, I think it was board of inquiry, that was a board of inquiry as well, um, to be, you know, extended and the, the, the scope widened a bit to cover that. And, I mean, you know, like whether you think Peter Credlin's a journalist or not, who cares? But she did the job that the fourth estate was supposed to be doing, and you know, it, oh, this it's, whole idea of who is a journalist is, yes. is is just so absolutely ridiculous. A journalist is someone who reports, you know, who does their best to uncover the truth and present it to the public, whether they've been to journalism school <clears> or <throat> or not. I don't care. You know what we're seeing now. Is is just ordinary citizens doing citizen journalism. They they pick up their their phone and they go down to their local rally or hospital or whatever the heck and they, and they film what's going on. You know they they show the public what it looks like. You know on on the ground sometimes quite literally yeah. when they get stomped on by Victoria Police yes. on the ground. Um, yeah, and and of course you know there are people writing articles. There are people doing podcasts like yourself. I mean. In, in, in what in what way are these are these not acts of journalism? Yep. And when when you, when you look at how the you know the, the the corporate media have performed so dismally, they've failed to to discharge the most basic duties of a journalist, which is to ask questions mm-hmm. and, and and to and to and to demand answers, not not to be fobbed off with with some you know uh, some little soundbite. I mean, all of these ministers and prime ministers and chief health officers and chief medical officers, they get up and they do their, their press conferences and they talk absolute nonsense, yep. total bollocks. They contradict themselves with, you know, like one, one, one sentence they'll be saying, well, you know, these, these vaccines don't stop transmission. And the next sentence they'll say everyone has to take them to, to, to reach herd immunity. And to protect your neighbour <laughs> and to protect yourself. Yep. And, and none, of, none of these little, you know, pets, Sitting down there in the in the press corps will raise their hand and say, "Oh, minister, uh, how does that make sense? You know, run that past me one more time." None of them do it. Mm-hmm. So, so is Peter Craigle a journalist? Well, she's doing the work of one. Mm. I don't have any particular liking for the woman, but who cares? Yep. <laughs> I don't have to like her. Is yep. she doing the job of a journalist or not? Yeah, and and that's what it comes down to, is that are they doing their job? And you know that that was. Um, you know, part of the thing for me calling, you know, 
and my blog and the podcast and everything what it is because I think the fourth estate is dead. Mm. It's up to it's the fifth dead. estate now, which is all of us, yeah. to yeah. to decentralise the power, take the power away from them and, and just do it. And, yeah, um, yeah it's it, it comes down to it. Now, actually, I think decentralisation yes, is probably a good way to get into that. Now, we know APRA is centralised, the yeah. power is centralised. Um, yes. And it's a federal body now, um, despite yes. the states having control for the registration of medical practitioners and everything like that. So mm. understanding that centralised power, everything, you know, it's it's answerable to whoever is pushing buttons, power paying bills. Power corrupts and absolute yes. power corrupts absolutely is more than um, said. Yeah. So there's that um, doctor, I can't remember the life of me, what his name is, the one who was... Um, uh, raided by authorised officers and all that. Yes, this um, is Mark Hobart. Yes, that's Mark it. Mark Hobart in, in Sunshine. Yes, yeah. he's um, got the dirty letter from APRA um, for mm. that. Now, this is the thing that gets me is that, okay, the APRA only do things with if it's a risk to the public. Now, if this doctor is, mm. okay, not saying that he did do that, but let's say hypothetically he is writing an exemption for Joe Smith to come in that he's been a patient of for the last 20 years or something mm. like that, how is that a risk to the public? That's only a risk to Joe Bloggs. Yeah. Whereas... So, so not, Mark Hobart's patients didn't make a complaint about no. him, right? Now, that, that's what ARPA is there for, okay? So if a, if a doctor is sort of, you know, leveraging their position to, to get sexual favours from, from their clients or just or patients or, or just frankly sexually abusing them, which, which happens more often than you might think. Or if a practitioner has a problem with alcohol and it's affecting their ability to discharge their duties or if they are making claims about what they can do for people that, that is uh, they're basically committing consumer fraud, um, that's where that's where ARPA is meant to, to step in and wrap them over the knuckles and say either stop doing that or, God, that was so beyond the pale, we're deregistering you. Mm. And, and it is important to have protections in, in place for, for the public. Um, however, that is not what APRA is doing. APRA is gagging practitioners, right? So I've seen the letters. I'm fortunate, I'm fortunate to be in a profession that is not regulated by APRA, but I have many friends who, who are, you know, psychologists and, and uh, you know, uh, um, um, doctors and uh, social workers and speech therapists and all these other professions. And so I've seen the letters that APRA has been sending to people and they could not be more explicit. It's basically if you contradict the part of the, you know, the government's position on, you know, what, uh, on how we should be managing COVID-19 and, and, and uh, that the, the vaccines are safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective, safe and effective. Uh, if, you, if you say anything that goes against that party line, then opera will come down on you like a ton of bricks. It happened to one of my best friends, a, a psychologist, who um, was running webinars la last year, a uh, series of them, in, in which she was encouraging people to ask questions about what was going on. That was it, encouraging people to ask questions. And an anonymous complaint, because they always mm, seem yeah. to be anonymous complaints, was made about a social media that she posted, that, that, that a social media post that she made to promote one of these webinars. And lo and behold, you know, the full weight of opera comes down on her head and she was put through a, a, a really um, nasty investigation by by APRA uh, acting through the uh, through the psychological council which is like the regulatory mm. body in, in her particular jurisdiction mm. 
And I, uh, she was uh, in one of these meetings. She was allowed to sort of bring a support person. Uh, it was an online meeting, but whatever. So, so I, I, I actually um, took part as a non-speaking support person in a, you know, <laughs> in an online <laughs> interrogation. Um, so, imagine what that looks like. Mm. Um, but, but as a non-speaking support person, I was, of course, able to write copious amounts of notes. And, I mean, the people who were interrogating her were basically just government mouthpieces. That's all they were. It was so disgusting. Now, this supposed investigation dragged on for months and months and months, and I just heard from my friend the other day that Upper is sort of, now, mind you, she, she lawyered up. Like, after, after a few um, letters back and forth, she, she lawyered up, and, and I, um, her lawyer sent Upper a, a, a letter which, which caused them to, to take a more conciliatory position, and she let me know the other day that, that Upper has sort of withdrawn their complaint mm. because... And I kid you not, um, they have evidence that she is of sound mind. <laughs> Which coming uh, from them should yeah. make you really concerned. When uh, the deranged think uh, that you're of sound mind, like maybe, maybe you need to start thinking, am I crazy? Uh, and, and, <laughs> because someone who is oddly deranged apparently thinks that I'm sane. <laughs> and that's the level of gaslighting that, that these, yeah. um, I, I used to call them the ruling, I not calling the ruling class anymore. It's just the evil class as far as I'm concerned because what, they're, what they're, they're doing the is evil, yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it just baffles me that, um, you know, that this is happening. There's so many gag orders and so many people mm. are, are literally, you know, shit scared of, of losing their jobs or their registration yep. for something that they've devoted their life to because of, yeah. of what? Now... Um, you know, I'll be honest, when, when this jab mandate first came out in Victoria, I contacted a couple of doctors to try and get an exemption and their thing mm. was despite what I expressed to them and what I indicated to them were the reasons were, no, mm. we can't give you one because Atagi mm. says no or if you want yeah. to claim an exemption from for anaphylaxis, well, then you have to go to Vixis, which is, I can't remember what the name mm. of it is, but they're the only ones who can authorise mm. a medical exemption due to anaphylaxis, not your GP. Yeah, despite, despite the fact that on the exemption form it, it, it specifies that if you do have um, an allergic or anaphylactic reaction to, you know, to any of the mm. ingredients in, in any of the shots, that that is grounds for an exemption. So so they print it right there in the exemption form and then they refuse to honour it. Yep, and then to go to Vixis, uh, you get an intensive phone triage before they'll even consider mm. giving you an appointment and mm. uh you know and you know it, it's the thing is that you know your, your local doctor's gone this is something that's done by a centralized body pushing it out yep. unfortunately the you know in in two contexts the local doctor's gone um because there's so many big uh corporate chains out now your, yeah. your little family doctor most, who's just, most gps are employees yeah, yep. yeah. They, they, just, they don't they don't have that that local practice where yeah. you know they treated your mom and, and and your brother and 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 you and and then when yep. you have kids they treat your kids yep. and like they 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 know all your ins and outs those those days are gone mm. yeah 
Um, but so so opera opera is is essentially inserting itself into the doctor patient relationship or you know the psychologist client relationship or the physiotherapist client relationship right so in other words when you go and see your doctor if you can do such a thing because most of them won't even see you anymore they yeah. want to do telehealth yeah. so but if you do go and see your 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 doctor you really ought to take um an extra chair into the consultation room um because there's your doctor and there's you and then there's the government yes yep they're in that consultation room with you via yeah. opera and the way that, that, that opera is is leaning on doctors and, and muzzling them. And not just doctors. I mean, you know, of course, the opera regulates the, the paramedics and the nurses and the speech therapists and the psychologists and all the rest of it. And, you know, lo and behold, um, who who should occupy the the uh, the post of um, the um, uh, sort of deputy uh, what is he, uh, Associate Director of Professional Engagement and Partnerships at New South Wales Ambulance. So, in other words, the, the sort of the representative of, of APRA for, for the AMBOs, but Scott Morrison's brother. So so there's there's no nepotism in this, though, is there? Mm. I mean, the PM's brother is sort of, you know, um, controlling the the regulation of, um, of, of paramedics in, in New South Wales. <sighs> It is nepotism, isn't it? Because I mean, I think what is yeah. it? Palaszczuk's uh, father does something with the testing or something like that. Ah, uh, yeah, he he owns a boyfriend. company that, that collects DNA, yeah. and then of course, um, Jeanette Young, the former chief health officer's husband, is is also involved in in DNA analytics. Mm. So. Yeah, I mean, it's all in the family. Yeah. It, it, it's all, you know, as George Carlin used to say, and I won't use his his very colourful language, but um, it's a it's it's a club, and you're not in it. Yep, yep. Um, okay, mindful of the time again. Um, mm. <laughs> two, one other. Okay, there's a couple more that I want to get into, but um, have you got time just to talk about the ingredients of the jab? Yeah, well, I mean, do you mean the ones that we know about or the ones that, that like the 22% of the, the volume of the Pfizer jab that is a trade secret that, that nobody knows about it except, except some people at the FDA apparently? Well, whatever you want to talk about, primarily the yeah. nanoparticles. Um, yeah. We can make this as long as short as you want um, and mm. then if there's anything that we don't want to cover before you have to go, we'll make a part three. Yeah. Um, sure. <laughs> Round three. Yeah. Okay. So the the um, mRNA products, which is so so far we've got the Pfizer and the Moderna ones mm. here in Australia and, and and throughout most of the world. And in order to deliver the mRNA, which is basically like an instruction manual for building a protein, in this case the, the protein in question is the spike protein of the original Wuhan strain of SARS-CoV-2, which of course is now extinct, mm. <laughs> okay, <laughs> which I think we talked about last time. So mm. in other words, the, the, the shot is made to induce immunity to a virus that isn't around anymore. Okay, um, but anyway, so in order to, to deliver the instruction manual for building this protein, uh, which would otherwise just be broken down by by the normal um, you know, enzymes within the human body, uh, it's encapsulated in lipid nanoparticles. Okay, so so these lipid nanoparticles are an essential uh, aspect of you, you might say the delivery mechanism of these products, and those lipid nanoparticles uh, are now you know very well established to not. Just just stay put in the deltoid muscle, the shoulder muscle, and the surrounding lymphatic bed. No, they go wandering off around the body. And I'm sure you've seen the reports of the uh, 
The biodistribution study that was obtained by the Japanese government, which found that these lipid nanoparticles uh, move into a wide variety of organs and they particularly concentrate in the ovaries. Mm -hmm. mm. And what does that mean? Well, we don't know, yeah, do we? We don't know, We, yes. we don't know. What, is, what, what does that mean uh, when, when you are putting a substance into the human body which concentrates in the ovaries? What does that mean to women of reproductive age? What does it mean to pregnant women? What does it mean to, to young girls? Um, nobody knows. I guess we will find out yes. in this grand, you know, global experiment in the next couple of, of, of years to generations. Mm. So uh, that's the, the lipid nanoparticles. And uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's worth noting that um, Moderna, which... Uh, um, the, the Moderna jab was was more recently approved in Australia, but um, and, and you would probably know that many countries in Scandinavia and Europe have actually yep. um, they, they're not using Moderna or at all, uh, or they're advising against its use or not making it available to to younger people, mm. um, generally people under the age of thirty, but particularly to teenagers and children, and yet it's being enthusiastically pushed on you know, on, on all age groups, uh, particularly those under 50 in, in Australia, okay? So make it that what you will. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, Moderna, Moderna had never brought a product to market before, uh, before COVID hit. Uh, there's a fantastic journalist by the name of Whitney Webb uh, who writes at Unlimited Hangout, unlimitedhangout.com, and she writes these incredibly lengthy and detailed, well-referenced pieces, real deep dives into, you know, all manner of things. And, and if you hop over to Unlimited Hangout and read her series on Moderna, uh, this, was, this was a company that had done nothing but serve up empty promises to investors for, for decades. They, they just always seem to have, you know, money to, to, to throw around and they never brought anything to market. One of the problems was they had never managed to develop a product uh, that was safe past two injections, and the limiting factor was the lim was the lipid nanoparticles. Mm. So originally, Moderna was uh, like Moderna built itself as as a gene therapy company. Mm. Okay, now for gene therapy products, uh, so, so if you're trying to treat say cystic fibrosis or something like this, um, you you need to continue treating the person with this genetic condition for their entire life. Well, they couldn't do it because the lipid nanoparticles were so toxic that that um, you know people were were sort of getting seriously ill or even dying as a, as a result of Moderna's products. So um, what, what change has there been to the formulation of the lipid nanoparticles uh, from then until now? Well, nothing as far as anyone knows. So they are using in their product, which people are now going to be told they need boosters of, so not two injections, but three, four, mm. five, one every year, one every six months, who the hell knows? Um, and and, and they, they have not, uh, to the best of, of, of Whitney Webb's ability to, to investigate, they have not change the formulation of lipid nanoparticles, which was which is what was causing the toxicity that prevented them from from successfully developing gene therapy products. So that's that's Moderna. Um, now, so so you've got the the lipid nanoparticles, but then there's a, a very uh, disturbing amount of contamination in these products that that has been detected by you know, for example, the the Japanese government um, identified contamination with stainless steel particles mm. in a, a batch of their Moderna jabs. And um, and, and so I, I I know that they halted the rollout of that batch. They've had at least one death. I, I believe it might be two. Um, 
from that contamination. Um, and and then, you know, th there have been claims of the presence of graphene oxide and uh, Whitney Webb, again, has, has done a really, really thorough job of investigating the original claim that surfaced about the presence of graphene oxide, which was made by researchers in Spain. And she, she's act she actually speaks, speaks Spanish and she's previously worked as a translator of um, uh, scientific publications, so translating uh, scientific publications from from Spanish into English. Mm. So she's you know extremely familiar with with the terminology that's used, and she's basically said, look, you know the the research the what, what these Spaniards did or these Spanish researchers does not show that there's actually graphene oxide in in the in the product. Um, Dr. Richard Fleming, who is a cardiologist, I believe he's in, yeah, I'm pretty sure he's in Texas. Um, he, there's a video out of, of, of him. Um, he's a very, he's a very solid character. Um, doesn't, doesn't say, you know, crazy things that he can't back up. So he's actually analysed uh, four, four different files of the Pfizer product and has not identified any graphene oxide. Now, does that mean that there's no graphene oxide in any of these products? Who knows, right? He had four vials. Um, mm. There could be different formulations. There could be accidental contamination. There could be deliberate contamination. I am not going to speculate on those things because I'm not in any position to know what the formulation of these products is. And that's the problem. There is too much about these products that that the people who are receiving them don't know because it's considered to be a trade or, or it's regulated as a trade secret. Mm. And that's unacceptable. I mean, how is it that we can inject this product into, you know, men, women, children all over the planet? And yet in the case of the Pfizer jab, you know, 22% of the volume of it, nobody knows what it is. Yeah, and Or we're not being told what it is. Unacceptable. With, with the things that I'm seeing from the US, um, you know, their concern is that, Anytime, and, you know, I've seen that when I watch, um, you know, with the VPN streaming programs that are based in the US, that anytime there's um, an ad for any medication, you know, the ad might, ad might go for 30 seconds or, or you know, 40 <laughs> seconds or something like that. 20 seconds is the ad. The next 40 seconds is you may have this, this and this, if you suffer from this, this and this. <laughs> you and blah, blah, blah. die. Yeah, and yet you're not getting any of that with the jabs. Um, same as That's exactly here. right. Safe and effective. Safe and effective. Yes. Safe and effective. Yeah. Um, um, the, we, we now you 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 touched on the underreporting um, uh, of, of adverse effects, and yes. I'm sorry, I did want to just you know briefly talk about that as well. Um, adverse drug reactions are routinely underreported. Adverse reactions to vaccines are even more underreported. The best uh, evidence that, that exists really for just how underreported uh, they are is the Lazarus study, which um, was performed by some people at the Agency for Health Quality Research in the United States. And look, long story short, I mean, your, your listeners can look up the Lazarus study. It's not that hard to find. Um, what they concluded from uh, developing an algorithm that, that basically um, delved into the, the database of a large HMO health maintenance organisation uh, called Harvard Pilgrim. So this was, you know, employees and their family members of um, the, you know, Harvard institutions and people living in the surrounding area of Harvard University. So, look, long story short, what, what they found is that uh, somewhere, you know, less than 1% of adverse reactions or adverse events following vaccination were, were actually reported to, to VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. 
So there's a massive underreporting. Now, what happened to the authors of that paper when after they delivered their, their initial findings is very interesting in itself. Um, so they delivered their findings to the CDC and then uh, the people at the CDC stopped answering the phone. Mm. They could not get in contact with them. They, 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 they didn't respond by email. Um, they, 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 these, the, the people who had commissioned this research just disappeared. And they could never, never go to the next stage of actually making this program live, like bringing it online and applying it to, to HMOs throughout the United States. So 1% um, is anyone's best guess of, of adverse reaction reporting overall. Um, so what, what are we looking at now with, with VAERS, with, with DAYAN, which is the Australian system, uh, VigiBase, which is the WHO system, you've got UDRA Vigilance, you've got the uh, yellow card system in the UK. There's no doubt that they're all being underreported because, you know, if you have a look at whistleblower reports, um, if there's a telegram channel uh, of Australian uh, health practitioners who were, you know, working in the hospitals and so forth, and they there's so many um, testimonies of these people on this particular telegram channel. And what they're saying is that none of the reports that they're seeing are being uh, notified to today. So the degree of underreporting is is massive uh, in Australia as, as it is overseas. Doctors are refusing to report. They're making excuses. They're gaslighting people. Uh, we're, we're seeing the invention of whole new categories like um, what is it post uh, post COVID stress disorder, right? Yeah. So so the re the reason that, that that young people are having heart attacks now. Um, is because of post-COVID or post-pandemic stress disorder. And I've, right? I've seen that being dismissed as so climate change as well. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's the next excuse yeah. to, to terrorise people that, that is being rolled in. You know, you, you might remember or you might have seen um, Project Veritas's um, expose mm, where yes. they, well, it was a sting operation, right, where they sent out one of their reporters to, to date the um, technical director of CNN. A mm. uh, lovely fellow by the name of Charlie Chester, and and he he said he said to this woman, look, you know, COVID's kind of losing its steam. The ratings aren't looking so good. So so the next thing we're going to move to is climate change. Mm. And, and of course, you know, Klaus Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum has already telegraphed that. I mean, they're already talking about it. They're they're basically rolling the COVID response into the climate response. Yeah, it's all you know, it's all just one mush of technocratic control over every man, woman, child, animal, blade of grass, rock, body of water, and, and for God's sake, air current on, on the face of this earth, maybe beyond it if Elon yeah. has his way. And and that's what they're doing is that there's so much stuff coming out now that climate change is going to be a public health issue. It's just like... Yeah, um, and and that's 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 actually in a whole other podcast. Yeah. I won't actually touch on that yeah. because it's just absolutely massive. I'm I'm happy to go there, but but let's not. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll do that another your, one. Yeah, your your listeners, yeah. their their heads are probably already exploding by yeah. this point. Um, so All so right. yeah, the, the the reports to to Dan, um, the database of adverse event notifications in in Australia is that is massively underreported, and yet we still see this just stupendous, really mind-boggling uh, number of, of adverse events reports. I mean, just, just as a comparison, the uh, adverse events reports to the TGA for COVID injections are, are 63 times 
the number, the volume of adverse event reports uh, compared to influenza um, uh, vaccines. Mm. And in terms of death reports, it's 67 times the number of death reports. Yeah. Okay. So, so you can't, I mean, this whole idea of, well, it doesn't, it doesn't prove causality. No, of course it doesn't. It's a pharmacovigilance system. Of course yes. it doesn't prove causality. The point of it is to raise safety signals. Now, I, I don't know how much clearer of a safety signal you can get than, than a finding that there's 67 more, more deaths, 67 times more deaths and 63 times more adverse events reports from, from uh, you know, or, or following the administration of COVID shots than there are flu shots, when we know that these adverse events are, are underreported, badly underreported. Mm. And then you have a look at the, the VAERS, like that. The, the, there's a graph on, on open VAERS, which, um, which allows people to navigate the VAERS data. So VAERS is the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, which is the US system. And you have a look at the, the graph of all deaths reported to, to VAERS by year. It starts at 1990, and it's like this flat line, like, you know, it's maybe, maybe 100, maybe 150 deaths reported per year. This is in a country of like 300 million people. Um, I think they're up to 3, 320, 330 million now. So, so this the the number of deaths just bumps along, you know, really, really low on on the y-axis, and then suddenly in two thousand, it just it, it basically goes vertical. Mm. So, this is a very heavily vaccinated population, right? You can't you can't roll your child in school without uh, without subjecting them to to all the childhood vaccines, and their their childhood vaccination schedules more densely packed than ours. Um, they've they've you know got all sorts of, um, like their, their uptake of, of flu vaccines is, is I, I believe, higher in the US than here. So it's not like you, you, you never had people getting shots before this, okay? They had plenty of shots. Um, but the, the number of adverse uh, events reported from those shots is just absolutely dwarfed. I mean, if you look at the entire history of theirs, there have been more adverse event reports to COVID vaccines than all of the vaccines um, that, that are, you know, on the US schedule for the last 30 years combined. Yeah, and, and yeah. Like, that's not a pharmacovigilance signal. Yeah. I don't know what is. And, and, and that's the thing is that yet we're hearing and there's so much stuff being pushed about how safe these jabs are. Um, and really? now they want compared to put that. Compared to what? Yeah, compared to what? Um, and they're wanting to put this shit in our kids. Um, That's so, truly frightening. Yeah. It's truly, truly frightening. Um, I think we might leave it there before we go down that rabbit Let's, hole. Yeah, before um, we go down that rabbit hole. So um, we'll have to um, organise a time and we will do a part three. Um, yes. On um, some whatever we haven't covered on this one, but... Um, yeah, so anyway, um, thanks for your time, Robin. Uh, we'll, as I said, we'll leave this one here and um, hopefully we can get you back next week and we'll continue part three. I am up for it and I do encourage your, your listeners to write in with, with, with questions to you uh, oh. because I'm, I'm more than happy to, to answer whatever questions people have if it's, you know, within my, my um, realm of knowledge or my, my realm of investigative abilities okay. to, to find them the answers to those questions. Actually, you've reminded me, there, there have been some people that have asked questions and they all sort of centre around the, the same one. So I think we'll just try mm. and squeeze this one in before we go. Um, okay. Thoughts on Novavax and COVAX? Um, understanding it's yes. just your thoughts. Is that if, if yes. someone has to do it and, you know, the, the, mm. the level of coercion um, is too much for them to to withstand. Is that mm. a better uh, uh, 
you know, quote unquote, safer way out. Yeah. So the the really the really key issue uh, where, where all the problems are arising from is the full length uh, spike based shots, mm. and that does include Novavax. Okay. So I have no reason to to think that Novavax would be substantially safer, if if any safer, because it is a a full length spike protein um, shot. Now, the COVAX-19, which is what um, uh, Nikolai Petrovsky uh, uh, from uh, Flinders University in South Australia, that's the one he's been working on, mm. and it is not a full-length uh, base. It is a protein subunit, I, I believe, I think. I'm just checking on that. Don't quote me. I'm looking it up uh, as fast as I can. Mm. It's, it's more like an old-fashioned... Um, no, sorry, I'm just, I've just found it. COVAX-19 uh, makes a spike protein in the laboratory using recombinant technology. Uh, they have their own adjuvant. Hmm. Um, I have my doubts about it. So Novavax, I would say, is not any likely to be safer. COVAX-19, or sorry, COVAX-19, um, Petrovsky's one. Hard to say. Um, the clinical trial has been done in, in Iran. Um mm. And typically in the West, we don't um, rate clinical trials conducted in non-English speaking or sort of non-Anglosphere or non-European countries as, as uh, being as good as, um, <laughs> which is quite a joke. I mean, all you have to do is look at the Ventavia whistleblower, Brooke, uh, Brooke Jackson's um, testimony to the, to the BMJ about just what an absolute mm-hmm. two fight the Pfizer trial was just, I mean, how absolutely uh, shoddy that that supposed, you know, gold standard RCT was. What a joke. So honestly, you know, um, who, who are we to throw stones at the Iranians? Yeah. Um, so, so look, I, I, I don't know. I mean, um, my personal position is that because we, we have uh, early treatment that is amazingly effective, I, I don't see the need for any of these shots. Why Why bother? Mm. Most people are going to be very mildly ill if they're symptomatic at all. They they will then develop a, a robust, durable, and, and a broad immune response to SARS-CoV-2, which uh, certainly up to this point covers them for all the many variants that have spun off from the original Wuhan strain. And if we just let younger, healthier people um, come across this virus, mount an immune response to it, we will get to, to herd immunity, yep. right? Um, now, for, for those for those who are too unwell, elderly, you know, obese, uh, have cardiovascular disease, have cancer, like whatever other comorbidities might affect their ability to, to uh, survive this virus or, or might cause them to become very seriously ill and, and possibly have, you know, long-term sequelae, then they, they deserve evidence-based early treatment. Well, we have that. Mm. Yep. So what? Why? Why do we need? Why do we need a vaccine? We don't. Yep. yep. We and don't need it. Yeah. We've never had a vaccine for any other coronavirus. And I'll leave you with this thought, right? Um, and this isn't my original thinking. Okay, this comes from Matthew Crawford, who's rounding the earth um, um, newsletter on Substack is is well worth subscribing to. So we've never had a successful vaccine developed for a coronavirus before, ever. Not once. We've never had the development of a successful mRNA vaccine against anything. Never, not once. 
Um, we've, we've never been able to eradicate a virus for which there was an animal reservoir, and SARS-CoV-2 does have animal reservoirs. So how, how on earth does anybody think that, that we've somehow managed to, you know, get all these unicorns in the same room? Somebody's, and, 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 not, and not just one, one company, but multiple companies all over the world have suddenly miraculously been able to develop safe and effective vaccines, many of them using mRNA technology against a coronavirus. Mm. How come they couldn't for the last 20 odd years? Yep. There've been plenty of attempts that have all ended in disaster. Yep. So, how, so, you know, what, what, what a miracle that, that the stars lined up for this one. Yeah, or maybe not. Yep. All right. On that note, we'll leave it there. On that um, note. Yeah. Um, so thanks for joining, Robin. Um, thanks for, for being involved. And uh, there will be show notes for this one once I get them all written up. Uh, I'm going to try and include links to everything that's been mentioned um, mm. and all that sort of stuff. You'll so, be busy. Yes, I will be busy. Um, so, yeah, so thanks uh, for this and uh, we'll try and set something up for next week. Sounds like right. a plan. All right. Thanks for having me on. All right. Bye. And that brings uh, to an end this uh, episode of the Fifth Estate Podcast with Robin Tudor. Uh, you can find the show notes on anything that we discussed on that one at uh, the fifth.estate forward slash episode 22. Um, as I said, uh, you would have heard during that trying to get um, maybe a third uh, thing going along with Robin, uh, it seems to be that a lot of people are interested in what she has to say. So uh, we might see if we can make it a, uh, you know, a weekly or bi-weekly thing uh, where we have discussions with her because there's always stuff changing at um, Wooflu related and all that sort of stuff at the time. So uh, we'll see what's going on. Now you can find Robin on her social medias. Uh, you'll be able to find that uh, on the show notes once again at the fifth, so T-H-E-F-I-F-T. Th dot estate e s t a t e forward slash episode two two. So thanks for listening, and I look forward to having you join me on the next one. Bye for now.